Will you guys flip with me to uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 19. I'm just going to read a little passage before Pastor Mike comes up. Matthew 6, verses 19 is where we're going to start. We're going to read down through verse 24. Matthew 6, verses 19, Jesus says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, good morning, everyone. I sat over there to throw you all off. Everyone's looking over here, and they're like, I don't see Mike's bald spot. And that's, there you go. Didn't know who was going to come up and teach this morning. Well, it's good to see you guys. If you could turn to Mark chapter 10. There's too much chuckling going on over here about my bald spot. I'm starting to wonder. I think I need to get a secondary mirror or something and find out. Mark chapter 10 is where we'll pick up this morning. If you want to turn to um, verse 23, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And as you're turning to that passage... Um, I've been blessed over the last several years to be a part of cohorts or groups of pastors that meet um, to talk about church planting and replanting and revitalization, kind of the the work of the ministry that the Lord has called me to in the last four years. And uh, this group of pastors and I have met together and um, discipled each other in ministry and some specific situations that church planters uh, find themselves in. And while we've been building our faith in the Lord over the the last couple of years, we do that through scriptural study, through prayer together. Um, And I was blessed to encourage and to be encouraged through this group of guys. Our cohort ended uh, this last spring, and and they're not going to continue it this fall. So I I definitely have felt like a gap in in the time that I would spend with this group of guys. Um, But it was so encouraging to be a part of it because these guys were walking a similar road to the one that I've been walking for several years now. And in these cohorts, not very often, but sometimes we would talk about tools that can help churches in their growth and in their vision, and and just to kind of be smart about how you're leading your people forward in a new ministry context. And so sometimes they, you know, like I said, we were focused mainly on scripture and on prayer, but sometimes we would talk about different uh, business tools that we could use. Now, if you know me and you know my background, it's not just in ministry. I love business. I was in business for a while, and so it's a world I lived in prior to being in full-time ministry, and one of the tools that our cohort discussed uh, towards the end of our most recent one that ended in the spring was we talked about a chart, and and we had a guy come in and kind of talk to our group about predictable success. If you want to put the slide up, that'd be helpful. There you go, predictable success, right there in the middle. So what's interesting about this 
is to spare the whole talk in the context of business and with some similarities to church planning, um, where you want to be is right there in the middle, right there in the center of predictable success. You start out with early struggles. I'll just kind of walk you through it. You get into the place where you're having some fun. Things are going good. You hit white water, which is like exciting. And then you hit this region of predictable success. Now you don't want to go over the edge. You don't want to get over this edge where you get into this treadmill, big rut and the death rattle where you're, you're basically getting towards the end of whatever business that you're running because somehow you stagnated and, um, there's, there's reasons why that happens and on and on the business terminology goes. But predictable success in the business world is where your team is operating at their peak potential, growth is happening, policies are in place, and programs are like rhythmically flowing, and lives are being changed. All good things, okay? All good things. And I'm not going to stand up here and tell you how to be a successful businessman or businesswoman. That's not my job today. What I wanted to do is show you guys that some things that we see in the region of predictable success can start to change how we make decisions. It can start to change how we view not only the world, but the church and our families and these types of things. And I think using a model like this to understand some struggles we go through and some pitfalls to avoid can be helpful. But I've said this a lot lately because the Lord's been pressing it on my heart. Many idols in our lives are good gifts that God's given us that we've made ultimate. Many idols are good things, good tools, good gifts that God's given to us, but we make them ultimate and they become an idol. They become a problem. Perhaps even good constructs that we can start to replace faith with. Okay, Trevor, take that slide down. I don't want to look at it anymore. I have a readback monitor. So you're like, how is he looking at eyes in the back of my bald head? Okay, so you guys, we can... (laughs) We can learn from things like this. We shouldn't throw out the whole thing. We shouldn't be unwise. There there are aspects of being smart in the business world that we should apply to the church. We can learn from them, but we cannot base our lives upon them because when we do, we've exchanged faith for predictable success. We've exchanged following the leading of the Lord and wherever that might take us for something that becomes smart. But smart according to whom? Smart or wise according to what? So often we're looking for the sweet spot where we can comfortably put, put our lives in cruise control. And as we were talking about this predictable success model, it, they're like, this is where you feel like things are really don't want to place them. But I was kind of cruising, things are going well. And they talk about the dangers on the other side. You don't get too complacent. Like, but even getting there without a desperation for the Lord feels complacent, doesn't it? And how many times have we been duped into thinking that churches that looked really successful We're not. Oh, they had all the business constructs there. They were growing like crazy. They were meeting all their quarterly projections. But they weren't being led of the Spirit. And when you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at his ministry, would you have looked at him and said that was a man who followed a really tight business model? That he knew exactly how to build a a church around him. That Jesus was mega and he had it popping in the fog machines and all that stuff. No, you're looking at our Savior at one point of his ministry where he looked at those around him, the 12, because everyone else had left and said, are you leaving too? I think by the world's model, according to the world's standards, we would start to question whether Jesus was a very successful minister at that point. Whether he was a successful rabbi. Would we be right to do so? 
No, it's God. The problem is, is that we look at things from a worldly perspective. And so often we're trying to comfortably put our lives into, clear, into cruise control. And that's not what Jesus has called us to. That's not the life he's called us to live. I think we could do this in a variety of ways. But what I'm po- talking about in this particular context is our religious practice. We want to know that if I do this, this way, it's going to lead to a thriving, growing, awesome, well-known, popular church. That's not what the Lord's called us to. We look at our lives this way too. We know that if, if I do this, then my job will always be secure. Give me the model. Give me the, the 10 steps. Do you ever wonder why those 10 steps, 12 steps, 20 steps, 35 step books sell? I made the last couple up. But do you know why those things sell? Because people are like, give me the code to crack the mess of my life. Right? I just need to know the steps I need to take so that I can actually be successful and be the person that I hmm, want to be. The person that I am aiming to be. We want to know if I do this, then my job will always be secure. If I do this, my kids will be upstanding citizens. Or if I do this or that, my church will never have conflict, ever. I have a suggestion for you. If you're ever pastoring and you want to know how to avoid conflict in your church, empty it. Then you'll be conflict free. Actually, you'll just have confliction in your own soul. But that's, you know, you guys, it's part of what we do as the church. We just want so badly, I think, to be comfortably in this place in our lives where we can hit cruise control and not worry about it. Francis Chan puts it this way. I love this quote. He said, God doesn't call us to be comfortable. Rats. He calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if he doesn't come through. That's it. That's who we are called to be. Faith requires us to put ourselves in situations where I'm not going to make it if the Lord doesn't come through. Now, how often, church, are we willingly putting ourselves in those situations? We might trip into them sometimes. But how often are we putting ourselves there willingly? The walk of faith requires us to not base our lives on what the world says is wise, but we base our decisions on the reality that God is good and worthy of our trust, our hope of our very lives. He is worthy of everything we can give and so much more. So we're unafraid to follow him to a place as a church, as his people, that we're in serious trouble if he doesn't come through. And it's interesting that even the church today, many, many churches today, have become so business-focused that they don't take risks of faith anymore. That they're only going to make the play that makes sense. Do the thing that looks right in the world's eyes. From the pages of the Old Testament to the New, we see over and again the call for us to have radical faith in a God who can do the impossible for those who entrust themselves to him as their only hope. A radical faith is what's required. It may not look like what we think it will look like, but so often I think that we're trying to live a life that's predictably successful. And I want to challenge that in our own hearts and minds. This morning we're back in Mark chapter 10. We pick up in verse 23 where 
you remember last week, the rich young ruler has just walked away from Jesus grieving, dejected, very upset. His back is turned to Jesus. He's fading away in the distance. He's dismayed and grieving the cost of true goodness as Jesus saw right through his religious pretense and loved him enough. The text tells us Jesus loved him enough to tell him exactly what he needed to do. That he was holding back his true discipleship from God because of his wealth for the love of his possessions, for the love and idolatrous relationship that he had with his wealth. His idol was his possessions, and they were a weight which prevented him from following God with his whole heart. And I shared this quote last week, and I want to share it again from Leslie Mitten. He says this, the only way to life is through the narrow gate of full surrender. And through that gate, we may take not what we want, but only what God allows. And then he says, for this man, his wealth was the hindrance. And so I present to you guys, before we read our text this morning, which I promise we're about to, before we read our text for this morning, what is the hindrance that the Lord wants to call out of us? What's the thing in our hearts and in our minds that's preventing us from walking through that gate? And I'm not even talking like a salvation gate. You're like, but we're Christians. I know that. I know that. And I pray that most of us are. And there may be some here who aren't. But when I'm talking about a closer walk with Jesus, truly following him, how many of us are going back and reverting back to the ways of the world? Even though we're saved, we're still tied down by things in this life that own us. Something that owns our minds and owns our affection. And as the rich young ruler is fading in the distance, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says this, picking up in Mark 10, verse 23. This is where we begin our study for this morning. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Amen? That's a powerful statement. Having looked carefully last week at the rich young ruler, it makes sense why Jesus would say that it's hard for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. The example of this is walking away from him. The example of that very truth is walking away from him. And yet the astonishment of the disciples has to be noticed because for them, this would have been a shocking countercultural statement to make. Because Jesus is pointing at what they viewed as success, not just success in the world, as success in the eyes of God. Because this is what they culturally believed. Jesus was turning the accepted Jewish standards completely upside down. Popular Jewish morality was simple. It believed that prosperity was the sign of a good man. They believed that if a man was rich, God must have honored and blessed him. Wealth was proof of excellence of character and of favor with God. If people had money, if they had it easy, if they had wealth, that everything they needed, clearly God was on their side. The culture of the day would have argued that the more prosperous people were, the more certain they were of entering the kingdom. 
And in many places of the world today where false religions are prevalent, this is often still the case. They believe that those who are truly living the right kind of life and all these pagan idolatrous religions, that if those who are actually provided for and have money and have positions of power, that they're the ones who are doing it the best because the gods are blessing them to live in that situation. Is that how we've learned Christ? Is that how he's taught his disciples up until this point and the example that he will set on the cross rather than a throne? Do we recognize that when Jesus, as, as Bonhoeffer would say, bids someone to come to him, he bids them to come and die? That he calls us to follow in his example of sacrifice. And, and I, know we, I know we get this, and, and I don't think that any of this is super shocking to the church because most of us have heard this said before. But do we live that way? Do we live a life that expects to die for the name? To sacrifice everything that the Lord asks of me. To be absolutely emptied and to be brought low so that he can be exalted. As John the Baptist would say, it's okay to his own disciples. He says, I must decrease and he must increase. I'm prepared to be emptied for the name of Jesus. I wonder how often, maybe not overtly declared, but covertly believed we can be susceptible to the kind of thought that these people were susceptible to as the, as the disciples look at Jesus and they're just like, what? That's crazy. That God's true favor is upon those who are prospering through finances or material wealth. I have a feeling the rich young ruler looked like the most religious guy around. He looked like the guy that everyone's like, okay, you know, me speaking in the place of Peter. I realize I'm just a lowly fisherman. But that guy right there, he's young, he's rich, he's a ruler. He's got to be doing something right. And who walked away from Jesus? Dejected, grieving, broken. Because he loved what he had more than he loved what God actually called him to do. He loved his possessions more than he longed for obedience. Jesus confronts how wealth can hinder someone from putting their trust and dependence in God. And even though you might think yourself wealthy, by the world's standards, and especially if you look at the third world, we are all very wealthy. We are all very well off. And I think that when we remember that, in reality, compared to the rest of the world around us, that we ought to look at ourselves and say, what of my wealth am I not willing to give up for the Lord? What holds sway over me? Oh, it's not a sin for the Lord to bless you. It's a sin when you make that gift an idol. It's a sin when you take a gift that God has given to you and you make it ultimate. And you start worshiping it in his place. The creation in the place of the creator. So Jesus uses this illustration that felt so ludicrous that the disciples says in, in verse 26, get even more astonished. They're already astonished. Now they're super astonished. You know, Paul would have made up a Greek word for it. And Jesus says this, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they're blown away by that. They're like, what? And they should be. I was watching TV last night and there was a camel on it. Seriously, I was watching, I was like, oh, look, a camel. I, I read about them this week. And I was thinking to myself, there's no way you get one of those through a needle. 
And it was funny because like I didn't say it out loud, but I like chuckled and both my boys are sitting there and they're like, <laughs> I guess camels are comical, but I'm like, <laughs> you can't do it. You're not getting it through there. You can't even get Joe Camel through that thing. All right. <laughs> I know that one fell flat. <laughs> Too many young adults. That's a cigarette guy. All right. Guys, Hanley Mool paraphrased it this way. It is easier to thread a needle with a great big camel than to get into the kingdom of God when you are bursting with riches. I love that paraphrase. It's beautiful. I like how he says great big camel. He says, it's easier to do that than when you're bursting with riches. The physical impossibility of the statement produces the even more astonished exclamation of the disciples. Then who can be saved? That's impossible. It's here at this moment that Jesus reveals that salvation is totally the work of God. That salvation is not achievable on our own means. The impossibility is the point. That's what he wants them to grasp. This is impossible. And then he says one of the most beautiful statements in in the whole book. That Jesus reveals that salvation is totally the work of God when he says with man it is impossible, but not with God because all things are possible with God. And this is like this earth-shattering moment for us where we look at our struggles, we look at the sin that we wrestle against, we look at the vices that we have in our lives, and we recognize that Jesus spoke this word over those vices. That when you look at yourself and say those words, even in your heart, your mind, that you may not even want to utter out loud, I can't. I can't do this. He says, trust in me. Follow me. Because with God, All things are possible. He can deliver us from these vices. Edersheim said it really well. He pointed them onward and then upward as well as inward, teaching them that what was impossible of achievement by man in his own strength, God would work by his almighty grace. Something that is impossible for people to accomplish, God is going to do a work by the grace that he pours out on us through Jesus, our salvation. And if the salvation of human beings was left to ourselves, not one of us camels could thread that needle. Not one of us could get in. No one's getting in unless God does the impossible in our lives. Thus, our faith in Jesus is called to action. Either we attempt to do this against his counsel on our own, as the rich young ruler who's fading in the distance still, would have said, I've kept all the commandments. I've done everything that's expected of me by the religious establishment. The church would look at you and say, the box has been checked. I believe you are in fact saved. And Jesus looks at him and says, there's one thing that you lack. See guys, never ever replace superficiality with the voice of the Holy Spirit within. Never think that just because you're jumping through the right hoops that everything's fine. Because God sees the heart. And he calls us to bear our souls to him because he needs to work that almighty salvation and power within us. And that ought to produce the lives that we live. When you come to this church, when you call Transform Ministries your home, I hope you understand that we intend to be a church that's unmasked. I do my very best to do that in front of you guys on a regular basis. To not 
wear any false pretense of who I am to say I'm one of you. There's a lot of situations I've been in in ministry in the past where it's almost like Christ is the head of the church, right? He's the head of the body, amen? And somehow the pastor is like a second head that's growing over here. And then the rest of the body needs the ministry of the body and the ministry from the Lord to be healthy. Where am I? Where am I according to the picture of Christ being the head and the church being the body? I'm part of the body. I'm with you. I'm a functioning part of the body alongside you, which means not only do I desire to minister to you, but I desire for you to minister to me. I need you to pour into me. I need you guys to be my brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to work together because last time I checked, I'm not the head. Jesus is. I'm with you. We're together in this. Thanks for making me part of the family. Now, you guys, we have to entrust our lives together to him as his body for him to work the impossible in us. For him to deal with the sin issues in our lives together. And I have to remind us all of something I just said a moment ago, that from the pages of the Old Testament to the New, we see over and again the call for us to have radical faith in a God who can and will do the impossible for those who entrust themselves to him as their only hope. He is going to work this in us because he is good and because Jesus said this is possible. The problem often lies at this juncture in our misdirection of this biblical truth of God's salvation and it applies to his doing the impossible of giving us all that we want or maybe even filling my bank account. God can do the impossible. You ever heard that misquoted? How often have you heard it misquoted? God can do the impossible, always trust in him. For what? For what? The context of this is the rich young ruler walking away dejected because he loved his possessions more. And Jesus saying, do you realize how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? But God can do the impossible. He can thread that needle with the camel. How often we've heard of God doing the impossible and it's applied to him doing what we want. Don't take it out of context. This isn't a promise for you to get everything that you want in this life. Looking at the text in front of us, could that be further from the truth, considering what he's told the rich young ruler to do? To go give it all up. Think of what is astonishing the disciples about his teaching right at this moment. God's able to do the impossible in our lives for his purpose and his glory, not ours. And this is wonderful news because that's why we were created. We were created for that, not to have our name on a billboard. We were created for his glory, not our own. We were created for relationship with him, not personal rewards and honor for ourselves. And I think some of this has creeped into our church. And by the church, I mean the church, the big C church around the world, that rewards is why we're doing what we're doing. Like we're part of some kind of God's rewards program, you know? And we're reading our Bibles going like, I'm just looking for my point total. I know that I've, I've invested some good, some good works this week, so I should have at least 250 points. That should be good for a free pizza, right? But think about this. It's not uncommon to see this misunderstood. Example, Peter. In the next verse, 
in verse 28. We'll read down through verse 31. Peter, oh, I gotta love Peter. He began to tell him, look, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus says, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. One commentator noted Peter's mind had been working and characteristically his tongue could not stay still. That's often the case with Peter all throughout this middle section of the gospel of Mark. Jesus, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. Peter, no, you're not. Stop talking that way. You know, they go to the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah are hanging out with Jesus and Peter's like, he just can't hold it in. He just starts talking, you know. And here in this situation, Jesus is like, everything is possible with God. And Peter just has to say something. He's searching for a way to validate everything they've given up. No, it's not that they haven't given up those things to follow Jesus. It's the fact that Peter had to say something about it. It reveals his heart. It reveals what he's thinking about. It's true that while the rich young ruler was not willing to give up his things for Jesus, the disciples had given up everything. They'd walked away from their livelihood and from what they knew to be normal. And Matthew's recording of this passage includes Peter asking the following question at the end of his statement, what then will there be for us? Hmm? Right? So we've done all this. What's in it for us, Lord? What do we get? Right? Now, it's funny because we're like, Peter, goofball. That's how we think. If I do something for the Lord, if I serve the Lord and I give him like, like a whole day, right? I just serve the Lord. I go on a missions trip and I come back and I'm like, boy, that was some good God points. Surely he's going to bless me. And four appliances break within the hour. What do we immediately say? Right? Lord, I did all this and you break my stuff. Right? Why do we think that way? Because we think in a worldly mindset about rewards. I did this. I deserve this. I put in this many hours. Why is my paycheck so small? That's how we think. Oh, I'm sorry. Now you guys are like, why is my paycheck so big? I'm just kidding. But like, you guys, you understand like we have this rewards view of the world. Rather than rebuke him, Jesus makes a threefold promise. He emphasizes at the beginning by saying, I'm telling you the truth. He goes, Listen to me. First promise. No one who forsakes home, loved ones, or lands for Jesus' sake and for the gospel will fail to receive back in this life a hundredfold what he has lost and eternal life. Christianity might involve the loss of home, friends, loved ones, places that we used to spend time at, but entry into the church Entry into the body of Christ brings with it a family far greater and wider than the one that's left behind. It's a new spiritual family. We can see that even better now than I think the disciples could grasp it back then because the church had not grown as it would in the very near future following the ascension of Christ. 
What's fascinating about this to me is that we can look around, and I've said this to you guys many times, like, I've gained so much family in the church. Like, the Lord has given me so much more than I ever had growing up. And I'm not dissing on my, my, my family. I'm saying that you guys are my family. How many homes do I get to visit? How many people do I get to spend time with? How much has the body of Christ blessed me? It's a hundredfold as, if, as compared to if I had never been a part of the church. We are blessed far beyond being a part of his family. The second promise Jesus makes is not a popular one. You're just going to love it. True disciples will be persecuted. If you are a part, if you've given everything up and you've been brought into the family of God, persecution is to be expected. It shouldn't surprise us when it happens. Think of how those persecutions in the book of Acts not only came swiftly for the disciples, but think about what they begot. The persecution sent them out of Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They fulfilled the great commission because of persecution that began in Jerusalem. And the church grew. And that view of how the hundredfold increase of mother, father, brothers, sisters, friends, households, fields, all of that grew because persecution was a part of it. Jesus is telling them this is how it's going to work. And somehow we think it's not going to work that way for us. How often are we praying for no persecution rather than the endurance to get through it when it comes? Are we praying for removal from trouble and struggle and strife? And we're asking God for comfortable. All I want is to live peaceably in my home. Is that such a bad thing? I want to contend with the scriptures that it is. That it's not good for you that it breeds complacency, and that it breeds a dying church. It's going to bring about the death of the church. The more comfortable we get, the more complacent we get, the more the church dies. Don't believe me? Read Acts. It grew through persecution and through struggle. Jesus says in his first promise, you're going to gain this much larger family than you've ever known. His second promise that we will be persecuted and his third is he promises eternal life. And it's interesting to me if you remember back, think back how this whole section began. What did the rich young ruler ask Jesus? What was the question that he asked him about when he fell at his feet? He said, good teacher, what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus just give you the key for? Eternal life. And it's in the context of Peter saying we gave everything up. So church, do you really want to follow Jesus? Do you really want to follow after him? Do you really want to serve him? He says give it all up. You'll get back this amazing family. Whatever it costs you, you're going to gain. And it's not monetary it's not a fuller bank account he's talking about blessing in this life of being part of the family of god he says it's going to come through persecution and eternal life is going to be the result jesus concludes with eternal life being found and forsaking the gain of this world for the suffering blessing and purpose of knowing him following him being found in him 
Mark 8, 35 through 37, going backwards a little bit, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said. Kind of kicked off this section that's continued on down through uh, this part of Mark chapter 10 when he said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? Jesus says, what are you in this for? What are you seeking to gain? He says, what you honestly are looking for in Christ. We'll find out what that is when we look at our hearts, not our actions on the outside. It's true the actions should beget what's going on the inside, but how many of us have been fooled, even fooled ourselves by doing the right thing, thinking that we're okay? I did the right thing today, I'm okay. Jesus straightens it out finally with his last statement in this section. In verse 31, he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. That's a very countercultural statement. And it's a very countercultural statement for us too. They cannot understand their discipleship in terms of rewards. Discipleship entails suffering and service. It must be understood and lived with in terms of love and commitment to Jesus. Not because of what one hopes to get out of it, either in this life or in the life to come. We cannot be motivated by rewards. I think we so often get caught in the reward mindset of the world that the reason we should continue on is we use the term, it'll be worth it in the end. Think about why we say that. I've said it. I've said it before. It's all going to be worth it in the end. What do you mean by worth it? Have you ever like dug down inside your own heart and tried to figure out what that means? Because there's, there's a chance that that means it's, it's for him anyway. We have the right perspective. It's for the Lord anyway. I'm a steward here. I don't possess the things that I have. They're his, right? So there could be a right mindset, but I wonder how often we say it'll be worth it because we think we're going to get something better and that that becomes a motivator. I'm motivated by the fact I'm going to get something better than what I have now. I just can't wait to get there because then, you know, then this will just be better. And it's like, well, if we're talking about sin and suffering and pain and all that, yes, but if you're thinking of personal accolades and acquisition, you couldn't be more wronger. I did that on purpose. Every now and then you got to make sure everyone's awake for the end. Okay, you guys, I've heard Christians say this. Someday I'll get my crown in heaven. Just waiting for that crown. Essentially, that our reward for all this suffering in this life will be some shiny jewelry. I'll get some bling in heaven, right? And that's why it's going to be worth it. Do you know what happens to your crowns in heaven? Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, church, hear this. The one who lives forever and ever, just kind of feel this moment. The 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Where does my crown, all those rewards points belong? right at his feet because he is worthy if we can get this worthiness 
concept deep into our hearts, it changes everything. Because if it's all for him because of who he is, it doesn't matter what I gain. Do you know what chapter 5 of Revelation is all about? It's about the worthiness of the Lamb. It's about the worthiness of the Lamb of God, of Jesus, to not only be honored and praised and to receive everything that we can give to him, but his worthiness to bring to culmination all of history, to open the scroll, to usher in the end, and to restore all things. We are not living lives of obedience for the rewards points. We're not here because being a part of the body of Christ promises us an easier life or even a, by the world standards, better life. Here's why we're here, church. If you want to know why you're here, why we, sh- we ought to be here and why we all need to be here, because he is worthy. He is worthy of everything I have, everything I am, everything I ever could be, and so much more. He is worthy, and that's why we're here. We're here as a church, as a body this morning to cry out and say, you and you alone are worthy of all praise and honor and worship. Because he's worthy of everything we can bring to him and so much more, it challenges the very core of who we are. And When Jesus presented the very honest assessment of the rich young ruler's heart he faded into the distance because he chose his possessions as of higher value and of more worth than the worthiness of God church I just want to challenge us is there things in our lives it could be possessions could be people could be situations could be locations Is there something that we're holding back from him because we believe it's more worthy than him? You have an opportunity this morning to surrender that. We have the opportunity together as a church to surrender that to the Lord and say, I have made this thing that you entrusted to me an idol. And I need to lay it at your feet and say, it's it's yours to begin with. All those possessions, all that wealth that the rich young ruler had, Jesus didn't say, go cast it into the fire. What did he say? Go sell it and give it where? To those who are in need. The poor. Are we using and stewarding, misstewarding, I would say, the possessions that he's given us for our own benefit and not for the benefit of those who are hurting and suffering, who need cared for? Don't let that bounce off you today praying that it sticks and that you think about it, that I think about it, that we take action, that we do something to help others with what God has given to us. Let's consider this and let's worship him. Worship team, come on up. Father, we just come before you and Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, um, your honesty with the rich young ruler and just the, the love that you had for him. Lord, in this whole section, as you interacted with him and then as you interacted with your disciples, there's not a person in this scenario that you had not loved faithfully and completely. And yet, Lord, with that love comes conviction. And Lord, even as Peter yet again misunderstood the reward system of heaven, 
Jesus, you're so gently reminding him of what the true blessing of following you is. And Lord, just where we're all going to end up. As we think about eternal life, as we think about where you're taking us, Jesus, eternal life and eternity is all about you. It's not about us. It's not about what we've gained. It's about you being worshipped because you are worthy. Lord, about how you're going to complete the work that you began in us. Jesus, through the sanctifying of your sacrifice, the work of the cross in our lives day by day. When Paul wrote those words to the church in Philippi, I wonder, Lord, how often we, we read that the one who began a good work in us will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus that we think more about ourselves than you. That we think more about how I'm going to be, the state I'm going to be in, rather than seeing you with untainted eyes. Lord, when I think of a restored world, when I read the end of Revelation and I see, God, that your dwelling is yet again going to be with man, I wonder if the thought that I need to go to more often than I do is, I'm going to see you through cleansed eyes. Jesus, I get to look at you without sin in the way, without flesh. Lord, restored to the way I should have been in the beginning before sin tainted me. How beautiful it's going to be to see our Savior with pure eyes. To hear your voice with pure ears. To walk with you as Adam did in the cool of the afternoon. Walk through a garden and just listen to you talk. To share with you my heart, my feelings. To express the gratitude for the life that you've breathed into my lungs. What a reward. What a beautiful relationship that we've been promised with you. Lord, set aside all the things in this world that taint our view of what it's going to be to have you. So Lord, we worship you. We thank you for doing the impossible. While we were dead in our trespasses and sin, Jesus, you died for us. And you did so not because of any works that we've done. None of us can boast. Jesus, every single person here who is saved has been saved by grace through faith. It's a work, Jesus, that you accomplished by obeying the Father. Thank you, Lord, for that reminder this morning. Would you just free us up to worship you in spirit and in truth? and to celebrate, Jesus, your worthiness this morning as a church. I love these people. I'm so thankful I get to be a part of this body, that I'm a functioning member of this body. With you as our leader, we worship you this morning. Amen.